away every tear from their eyes and be their God. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that as we examine your word this morning, that you would give us a quickness of thought, help us to grasp glorious and heavenly and eternal things. Help us to read your word without doubt. We do pray that you would blow away the ashes of unbelief that continue to reside within our hearts and minds. Help us, Father, to be wise. Help us, Father, to have a rest in you and the blood of Christ that delivers us from all sin and death and darkness. Bless our time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Almost on a daily basis, I find myself with the, if I can say it this way, beautiful yet difficult task of seeking to bring comfort to people going through times of difficulty. I mean, it's, it's the nature of the job, and I'm not complaining. People ask, how's the church? And it does include that. I mean, that's what you sign up for. And I, and I would do hope that all of us at some level find ourselves in that capacity, right? Seeking to, to aid others who are in times of difficulty. And sometimes, to be honest, it's simple. Sometimes it's easy. Sometimes people just need to know that there's somebody out there who cares. Sometimes people just know, need to know they're not alone, that somebody's going to pray for them and um, you know, that helps. But there are other times when it's not so easy. There are times when the trials in the lives of people can be excruciating. And it's very difficult to find the words or the actions to help them. I mean, I currently have a letter I've been trying to write literally for weeks to somebody who's going through a very difficult time. They've gone through a difficult time. And I write it, and I'm just like, that's just not it. And I'm writing, and then it's, you know, it's, it's hard. You want people to know the wisdom and the peace and the power of Christ. I mean, that, that's kind of like the end game, you know, for me as a pastor. When I'm with you or with, I'm with somebody individually, I want them to know the love and the peace and the wisdom and the power of Christ. But sometimes getting there is a circuitous route, right? You don't just give a theology lecture to somebody who's got an open wound. But you don't want them, especially those who are professing Christians, to be led astray through their pain, through their difficulty, through their sorrow, through their bitterness. There's part of me kind of going, look at you need to stay the course. Don't be won over by the glitter of the world. The world is saying, no, 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 do this, and this will make it a little easier for you. And I know for me, ministerially, I'm like going, don't believe that lie because Sin will be fun for a season.
we need to remember that this letter called the Revelation is written to churches. It is written to people who need strengthening. It is written to people who need encouragement to stay the course. So often, the Revelation is approached as a spectacle, as a, as a fascination, as something sensational. That's why there's movies made and books written, fiction and all this stuff. Let me tell you, I don't think that the Revelation should be read that way. It should be read ministerially. Let's not forget that this letter was written to uh, seven churches on a Roman postal route who were going through all sorts of difficulty. That's why it was written. I don't doubt that John on Patmos felt to a much greater degree the same way that I would feel as a pastor going, how do you keep these people strong in their faith? In brief review, the recipients of this letter needed to be reminded of their true home, their true identity in Christ. And although we should love and care for this world, I don't think we should be so otherworldly that we don't have some type of an effect upon this world. I think our, our current heaven and earth needs to be tended. But what we're learning in this letter is that there is a new heaven and earth And that new heaven and that new earth is our true and eternal dwelling. And the heart of this new heaven and this new earth, we learned last time, is the new Jerusalem. And that only will begin to make sense to you if you actually read your Bibles. You need to read Genesis through at least Malachi to have an understanding of what a central focus Israel and Jerusalem are when it's God's effort to to instruct us and teach us. You see, what happened was the old Jerusalem, which was really the heart of religious truth and culture, had grown corrupt. And it had become obsolete. And the author of Hebrews says, and it's vanishing away. Paul says, no, there's another Jerusalem The Jerusalem above. The Jerusalem above is free, and the Jerusalem above is our mother, the mother of us all. And this is where it becomes difficult to be kind of a wooden literalist in your study of the Revelation, right? Everybody's like, oh, you got to take your Bible literally, and I, I agree if by literal we mean by the letter we understand. But at the same time, this new Jerusalem, is it a city? Well, Jerusalem was a city. But it's also a a bride. So you've got kind of, you got a difficult metaphor going here, right? The new Jerusalem is both a city and a bride. And we should recognize that we're not just citizens in the new Jerusalem. We are the new Jerusalem. We are the bride of Christ. That's not unclear, not only in Ephesians 5, where it's explicitly stated, but through all of Scripture, God refers to his people as if we're married. And when his people are unfaithful, he calls them adulterers and so forth. We are the objects of God's love and redemption. We are his bride. And in a certain sense, our entire life 
is walking down that aisle in the wedding, which I can tell you can feel like a long walk. For those of you who don't know, I just did it with my own daughter last week, so I felt like that walk, they're like walk slower in the rehearsal, and I'm like, this, I can't walk slower, I need to get to the end of this, and I wasn't even the bride. It's harder to be the dad than it is, I'm guessing, I've, I'll never be the bride, so I, I don't. <clears throat> but in that, in that walk down the aisle, Christ is washing us with his word, with water in the word, that we might be without spot or wrinkle, holy and without blemish. And I think we should all realize that sometimes that cleansing can be painful, right? It's like, just popped into my head, that movie Silkwood, right, where she gets exposed to radiation poisoning, and they, t- and they have to clean her with the hose, like the hard hose. And sometimes that's what the cleansing feels like. It's like a high-velocity hose that God is unleashing on us to remove the poison that is within us. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. So the information that we are about to receive is delivered with, with a loud voice from heaven. You know, I mean, I don't know about you. Oftentimes when I'm reading the Bible, I gloss over certain things. But I just read a book, you know, about the original, you know, I'm, I'm constantly reading books about, you know, the original transcripts and what have you and how difficult it was to actually write, you know, on the papyrus. And if you look at the, the transcripts that we have, there's no indentation, there's no spacing, you know, it's just words, because it was hard, right, to write these things. It's not like today where we type it and then delete it. It was difficult. And so God is very economical with his words, and yet here we have a loud voice from heaven that we would tend to kind of go, well, what's, what's it saying? But sometimes we got to stop and go, why a loud voice from heaven? Now, we recognize that all of Scripture is of value. It is all inspired by God. But there are times when Jesus will say, verily, verily, or amen, amen. And he does that to, to garner a sharper focus from the people who are listening to him. And I, I actually had, was tempted to be theatrical up here and say loudly, you know, scream and point, look, you know. But I'm just not that theatrical. But there is a loud voice leading up to this very emphatic interjection. Behold. Look. And what are we called to behold? The tabernacle of God is with men. Now, I've said this many times, it's difficult to grasp the revelation without some working knowledge of the Old Testament. You you need to know your Old Testament for this to make any sense. There's probably about 500 allusions. In 22 chapters, 500 allusions to things in the Old Testament. So you're not going to get the revelation unless you're pretty conversant with the Old Testament. So here we have the tabernacle. 
kind of a big deal in the Old Testament. We see it very specifically in Exodus 25, chapter 25 through chapter 31. Very detailed instructions. So much so, if you're reading it, you're thinking, these are like blueprints. And there are times when I want to call somebody who's in construction to explain, you know, and sometimes it helps me because you'll see people who will make, you know, pictures of the tabernacle for you to kind of get an idea of what this looks like, right? Or pictures of the temple, artist rendering, and what have you. So we have very detailed instructions of the tabernacle, of its function, of its construction, and what's supposed to happen there. And, and, And the Israelites were called to assemble it and disassemble it as they traveled through the wilderness. The difference between the tabernacle and the temple was the temple was in one place, but in the, the tabernacle would move around, and here's the deal. It was always with them. The tabernacle was always with them. But what was in it? Well, there was a lot, more than we can get into this morning. But probably the central piece of furniture in the uh, tabernacle was the Ark of the Covenant And in that ark, we see God's law in the Ten Commandments. We see God's grace in the manna. We see God's blessing in Aaron's rod. Remember the rod that budded? We see in this tabernacle, there was a a table for bread. There was a golden lampstand for light. There was an altar for sacrifice. There was an oil. There was oil, special oil for the lamp. And there were detailed instructions on the priests, what they should wear, what they should do. There was very much a comprehensive instruction on this entire thing. There was another altar, by the way, for incense. There was a basin for washing, and more and more, right? I mean, we could probably do a whole series on the tabernacle and what was in there. But let me just tell you, at the risk of sounding irreverent, when you get right down to it, it was just a big tent with a lot of furniture in it. You might, you might view, view it as a classroom. Or more specifically, if we want to personify it, as a, as a tutor. Right? The, the Old Covenant, which is often called the law in the New Testament, was designed to prepare and bring us to Christ. Now, keep this in mind. Remember, I did a whole series on this, right, where Jesus said the whole Old Testament is about him. And and now you have this kind of central object in the Old Testament, the tabernacle, and that's about Jesus. The Apostle Paul put it this way in Galatians 3, 24 and 25, therefore the law, and keep in mind that when we talk about the law, the tabernacle was the central religious artifact in terms of that whole system, that whole administration. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. You know, it's beautiful, the scriptures are, there's really, you you know, one message that is approached in all sorts of different angles. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Yeah, I mean, the implications of that are vast, right? We don't need the tutor anymore. 
we don't need the tabernacle anymore. We don't need the temple anymore. Matter of fact, I said earlier, right? It's obsolete, it's vanishing, and it's about to be destroyed at the writing of this. And any thorough examination, and again, we don't have time to get into the detail, details of this, but any thorough examination of the tabernacle will almost shockingly reveal the person and work of Christ. I mean, the things that Jesus said, John, who, by the way, wrote the Revelation, also wrote the Gospel of John, and he has the, the I am's, you know, are in the Gospel of John, the seven I am's. And these statements kind of reveal what John is kind of conveying to us. Jesus said, I am the bread. Where is that in the tabernacle? It's the manna. I am the light. Where is that? The lampstand. I am the door, presumably the door into the Holy of Holies. All of these things and more are found in the tabernacle. Jesus is basically saying, every, all that stuff that you read about in the tabernacle, that's me. When John writes of the tabernacle, in one sense, see, he brings our minds to the Old Covenant, right? He's kind of going, oh, tabernacle, Old Covenant. But when you go to the Old Covenant and you start reading about the tabernacle, where does that bring our minds? It brings our minds to Christ. And there is something else John recorded that is remarkably similar to, to what he'd already written somewhere else. And I think Young's literal translation captures it best in John 1.14, right? He's saying, the tabernacle has come. And the Word became flesh, recognizing the Word there is Christ, who became flesh, and did tabernacle among us. And we beheld His glory, glory as of, and only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Literally, He tented. They, 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 they turn that word into a verb. The tent tents with us. My point here is that John is recording something very similar to something he already wrote when he says, the tabernacle of God is with men. Because when the word became flesh, the tabernacle of God became one of us. The incarnation when the Son of God became flesh, the tabernacle joined humanity. He is, as we learn in Christmas, right, God with us. And if we can add to this, now I'm going to push this a little further. He came, he tabernacled among us, he died, he was resurrected, he ascended, but what was his promise? His promise was that he would always be with us, and I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. So even though, I want to make this point, even though these final chapters of Revelation present the full consummation of glory, in a very real sense, this tabernacling has already begun. It's not entirely future. 
this principle that we're talking about that I'm sharing with you is often called the already not yet principle. There are things that are already and there are things that are not yet. And I'm not a super big fan of that term. I think it's helpful in some respects, but even when I say it, I can see confusing faces, right? Because kind of everything in life is already but not yet. I mean, there are certain things that already happen and are not yet going to happen. And there's not an entirely agreement on, well, what, what is already and what is not yet, right? So I, I do think somehow it helps us a little bit, but it doesn't entirely answer the, the question. Now, I've done this many times, and I'm going to do it again now. It might be best to understand this very glorious consummation, this macro redemption that we're speaking of in Revelation 21 and 22, the same way we understand our own personal redemption. What are you already? And what are you not yet? Personally. What I think we find is there's a great deal under the already. We are already redeemed, Ephesians 1.7. We are already given life, Ephesians 2.5 and many other places. We already belong to Christ, Ephesians 2, 13 through 15, we're already seated with him in the heavenly places. That's, a, that's kind of a tough one, right? Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places already belongs to us. These things are already ours. When God sees you, when God sees me, when God sees those who have faith in Christ, he already sees the righteousness of Christ. He sees us as righteous in his sight in terms of our justification. You know, the Apostle Paul, he almost obsessed on this heavenly identity, this this alreadiness of his life. So much so that he just kind of, it was almost like, yeah, I'm not even that guy at all anymore. I'm not that old man at all anymore. I'm I'm, I'm the new creation. I'm the new creation. when he compared this new creature that he was, this new creation that he was, to his old self. I mean, he goes into this idea. His earthly accomplishments, his earthly possessions, his earthly religious pedigree, he considered all those things to be rubbish. And that's a nice translation in comparison to who he was in Christ. Even his own righteousness. And, and, you know, I mean, Paul, you know, at the end of his ministry will refer to himself as the chief of sinners. Like, he kind of recognized his own darkened, sinful heart. He recognized that. But make no mistake about it, he was probably one of the most righteous people that you would would ever meet. He was somebody who was willing to die for his faith. So in in earthly observable metrics, he was probably a pretty righteous person. I think he'd be a great neighbor to have. I think he'd be a great person to have on the elder board, you know, on the session of your church. But even his own righteousness was not something that he sought or found peace in. Should we try to be righteous? 
all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love God, love your neighbor. Pursue it with all, of you, all that you've got. But let me tell you the danger here. The danger is that if God is sanctifying you and you are becoming more righteous, that you begin to take comfort in that righteousness. And that's a dangerous thing to do. Because there's another righteousness that should be our comfort. It's a, Luther called it an alien righteousness, a righteousness outside of ourselves. And I think it was Paul's focus on that righteousness that was outside of himself, the righteousness of Christ that gave him the ability to, as Peter expressed, have joy inexpressible in his times of, of difficulty and even in his facing of death. He took comfort in a righteousness that was not his own. Paul sums this up when he wrote of gaining Christ and being found in him, Philippians 3.9, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. I pray that that is true of every person in this room or whoever eventually hears this sermon, that you are not taking comfort in your own righteousness, but by faith, the righteousness of Christ is given to you. And when God sees you, he sees that righteousness. I have to say, you know, I mean, I'm just like you. you struggle, I struggle with my life. I struggle with sins. I struggle with difficulty. And one of my favorite, you know, times of the week is when we come in here and, you know, whatever elder is up here and says, you know, if you believe, your sins are washed away. And then, you, you know, it's like you're going, okay, it's time for me to forget all that stuff and focus on my eternal Sabbath rest and my inclusion in glory and for this whatever hour, hour and a half, where I am told, don't think about that stuff. That stuff is washed away. God's not thinking about it, and you shouldn't be thinking about it either. We are entering into a time of praise. We are, in, we are praising God, not in hopes of what he'll do, but we're praising him for what he has done. I remember speaking to a worship leader about that, and he, it was kind of at a semi-charismatic church, and he was talking about during worship, and He's like, yeah, in worship, we're trying to connect with God. And, and at some level, I, I appreciate what you're trying to do, but that's not what worship is. Worship isn't our effort to get God to hear us. Worship is us praising God for having come to us. We are not climbing Jacob's ladder in worship. Jacob's ladder is Christ who has come to us. And, and that is ours by faith. Of course, in his earthly dwelling, Paul, because after all, he was just a man, he wasn't a superman, he knew that he had not attained the fullness of that peace. He knew that. Not that I've already obtained it. Like he'll, he's very honest. He knew it was a battle. I mean, I hope you know you're in a battle. It's a war. I'm not just making that up. The Bible talks about it all the time. The weapons of our what? Warfare. It's a spiritual war that we're in. He realized, his language is interesting, he goes, to a certain degree I've already obtained it. Like, not the fullness, not the full consummation, right? 
but at some level I've obtained this. And therefore Paul, and I think we should pursue a certain mindset, a certain type of thinking in our lives. In Paul's sharing of this quest, he speaks of his true citizenship, which no doubt, I think, consumed his thoughts daily when he faced his difficulties, when he faced his death. I mean, Paul, again, he's very honest. He'll write of all the things he went through, right? Shipwrecks and lashings and all this stuff. And you wonder just, you know, what was it that got him through this? And I I think it, it had to do with him recognizing his true citizenship, who I really am. Not to mention the psychological discouragement of being surrounded by hostility. You know, you're not, he wasn't riding the wave of Western evangelicalism, you know, where you had to be a Christian to be president or something. He, he very much was under attack, but he always knew his true citizenship. He writes in, later on in that same chapter where he's like going, talking about this other righteousness for our citizenship. That's present tense. Our citizenship is in heaven from which we all also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's, you got a little bit of an already not yet there, don't you? Our, our citizenship is currently in heaven, and yet there's also a waiting that takes place. Who will transform our lowly body? And he's talking there, I think, about our final resurrected body. That it may be conformed to his glorious body. So when we're resurrected, we'll be resurrected the way he was resurrected. They were able to touch him, right, when he was resurrected, according to the working by which he is able to subdue all things to himself. That's a powerful little statement. I'll just let the post-millennialism of that hang in the air for a second. God will be our God. This idea that I will be their God and they will be my people, is another recurring theme we see throughout Scripture. We open with it today in our call to worship. Ezekiel 37, 27, and 28. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall know my people. They shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. And there's numerous references to that. It is, by the very nature of the statement, something that is not automatic, right? They will be. We need to recognize that we are not born into this condition. We are are not citizens of the kingdom of heaven by virtue of being born. It is by being born again. We must be given life. One of the great nightmares that I have as a pastor is that you would sit under the teaching in this church. June will be 33 years for me. That there are some of you who on that day will say, Lord, Lord, and Jesus will say, I never knew you. You need to be born again. You need to call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. 
if, if you're not in Christ, you are currently in a state of spiritual death and you need to be made alive. And the instrument by which God does that is faith. Call upon his name. Trust in the Lord. I mean, there's any number of ways we see it in the scripture. Not, none of them are ask him into your heart, by the way. Matthew Henry, I think, beautifully expresses the full consummation of that life, that glorious and inevitable future for those who are in Christ. Moving now to that glory, he wrote this. The presence of God with his people in heaven will not be interrupted as it is on earth, but he will dwell with them continually. The covenant interest and relation that there are now, right? So you have, again, the already, that there are now between God and his people will be filled up and perfected in heaven. They shall be his people. Their souls shall be assimilated to him and fully brought in to him, filled with all the love, honor, and delight in God which their relation to him requires, and this will constitute their perfect holiness, and he will be their God. God himself will be their God. His immediate presence with them, his love fully manifested to them, and his glory put upon them will be their perfect happiness. That's what these seven churches needed to know in the midst of all this difficulty. That's what you need to know in the midst of whatever. That's what I need to know. This needs to be our mindset. Jesus goes to prepare a place for us. And I have a feeling that he's a pretty good decorator. But you see, friends... The nature of our lives now is that we are interrupted. Matthew Henry says uninterrupted, but right now we're interrupted all the time. As a matter of fact, God, when he calls us on the Lord's Day to come here, he's trying to interrupt us from our worldly and mundane thoughts. He goes, I need, I need you guys to be interrupted. We're interrupted all the time in terms of thinking godly thoughts and living in that time of faith. Why is that? Well, I'll tell you why. It's because you're a sinner. I am a sinner. And we live in a sinful world. I hope we all realize that. It is also due to this, you know, and take this for what it is. It is due to our neglect of the means of grace that God has provided that we might fully enjoy who we are in terms of our true citizenship. God, it's not as if God doesn't understand our battle. And so God is going, look, I'm, gonna, I'm going to provide some things for you that are going to help you understand who you really are. And theologians have called these things the means of grace. The ordinary means of grace. They're ordinary things. Well, what are they? Well, it's the word. Both bread and preached. It's prayer both personal and corporate. And here's one that's completely been lost, I think, in our current culture, the sacraments. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. 
And I think there's more to it than that, but those are the things that if you neglect those, then, then you're going to find that your soul is, is hungry, that the peace and the love and the power and the grace and the wisdom is, all this, is kind of like, you know, drifting away from you. You know, I, I've long wondered, you know, and again, I've been in the ministry almost 40 years now. I've long wondered, seeing people walk away from the faith, what happened first? You know, I got this chicken or the egg thing going on in my mind in terms of they are no longer going to church and they've, then they walk away from the faith or, or do they walk away from the faith and then quit going to church? Like, what, what's going on here? You know, is it like going, I'm having a difficult time, I'm still going to church, I walk away from the faith, I'm still going to church, even though I'm just sitting here, and then, then finally I just leave. Or is it, I'm just going to quit going to church for various reasons. Kids, you go away to college, mom and dad aren't there to go, hey, it's time for church, so you just quit going. I have to say, you know, I don't know if I have stats to prove this, but I'm firmly convinced that, it, that the first thing that leads to this type of emptiness is when you just quit availing yourself of the means of grace that God has provided in church. Because you know what? We all struggle. We're, we're all going to have those down times. But when you, when you say no, when God says, gather my people, and you're like, eh, and you do not, it is, by the way, it's the responsibility of the church to make sure that they provide those things. It is our responsibility as a church to make sure that we provide the word of God, that we provide prayer, and that we provide the sacraments. In, along with other things, but those are at the top of the list. That's why historically, that's what you'll see in churches, right? You see a table like this, you see a font, and you see a Bible open somewhere. Right? These, this is the way they decorated churches. And it's the church's responsibility to provide these things, and it's your responsibility to avail yourself of them. And if you don't, then you're going to find that you are dry and thirsty. These things should be the staples of corporate worship. I was recently in a conversation with a buddy of mine down at the beach, who goes, a Christian buddy who goes to another church, and we have a mutual friend who's a professing believer, but he doesn't go to church. And uh, so we're talking. I've known this. These guys are probably at least in their 50s, and I've known them all since they were in high school. And this mutual friend of ours has gone through a very, very difficult season in life. I mean, if I, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to share specifically because I don't want you guessing who I'm talking about, but it, well, it's hard. I mean, he went through a, something that if I shared, you'd all go, wow, that's about as tough as it gets. And he has just chosen not to go to church, any church. And he's struggling. And as I'm talking to my buddy, I'm going, it, it, it makes me sad. It, it grieves me because he is not availing himself of the one main thing that God has provided him to give him strength and peace and joy in his time of difficulty, and that is doing what we're doing right now, gathering together, worshiping God together, praying together, singing together, looking at God's word together. He won't do it. 
And he, and he kind of stays in this very kind of morose condition. And I'm not going to say he's not a believer. We live in a culture that is kind of de-emphasized being part of a church. We live in a culture where, you know, you read a tract, you get saved, and then you just kind of listen to the radio or read books or watch television. But God has provided something for us to strengthen us, to encourage us, to grant us those things that remind us of our true citizenship in heaven. God seems very concerned about this intimacy. I know in Reformed churches we shouldn't get all that emotional, we shouldn't get all that intimate, but you can't read this next... I don't, I'm not saying we shouldn't, but I just found that Reform people tend to be a little more, what's the word? <laughs> yeah, I'm waiting for somebody to say it, but. <laughs> That's right, and I, no, I, I, you know, just so in case you didn't hear that. There's, there can be an error on the other side of that, right? Where you kind of, the emotions take over and, uh, you know, it's a, the adrenaline rush is the Holy Spirit and you got to be careful of that. So you got to find, you know, and so I think in reaction to that, we're like going, well, I'm not going to feel anything at all. So I think there's some place in between. I think I, there are certain things that we should hear that we know to be true according to the scriptures and we should have some type of response to it. Like, we should kind of go, I like that. I mean, I hope we all feel kind of good when the elder says, your sins are washed away. If that doesn't kind of make you feel good, I mean, you must be like an engineer. <laughs> Just kidding. But this last, this last verse, I think, it's, it's, I mean, it's very affectionate, right? And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. You know, there's a story in Mark of a blind man that Jesus is going to heal. And for some reason, as Jesus is bringing him to the place where he's going to heal him, it's when he spits and touches his eyes and what have you, Mark decides to record that he took the blind man by the hand. Remember a minute ago I said, you know, there are a limited number of words, right? Why would Mark go, why would he say that? Jesus took the man by the hand. I I think he wanted his readers to know about the warmth and the intimacy, the personhood of Christ, that he's not some cold, out-there deity, right? He, he took this man by the hand. The language of verse 4 is designed, I think, to very poetically convey affection and tenderness. And I, and I do think you know, it's, I mean, I think it's real, but I think the, you look at it, and if you really examine it, it's kind of poetic because in a way it doesn't make sense because he's wiping away tears. But the verse also says what? There's no crying. 
Well, if there's no crying, what tears is he wiping away? So, you know, you've you got to be careful the way you read your Bibles, right? I think that, I think it's written that way because one of the most tender things you can do is wipe away tears from somebody's face. I'll tell you this, if you see me crying, unless you're my wife, don't come and wipe the tears away from my face. I'm just uncomfortable with that type of thing. But I also say this, that as a dad, one of the most enjoyable and affectionate times I ever had with my children was to comfort them when they were suffering. I, I mean, I think I've mentioned this before. Like, if they got hurt, I don't want them to get hurt. But if they got hurt, I don't want somebody else picking them up and comforting them. That's my job. That's my, that's my wife's job. But that's what's conveyed here. It's a very tender, intimate picture of him wiping the tears from our face. And then we have this remarkable promise, this idea there'll be no more death. Paul calls that the final enemy, the death of death. Death is destroyed. This final enemy, Isaiah puts it this way, he will swallow up death forever. This word swallow, other words can be used in terms of the destruction of death, and other words are used, but this idea of swallowing up death, and that word literally means, it's the way like when Jonah got swallowed by the great fish, this idea that God, through Christ, is going to swallow death. It's kind of got a different feel to it than just get rid of something. One of our former elders, Dave Kennard, who's now gone to be with the Lord, used to tell a story, um, and it's always stayed with me. And it's a story about a family in the car, and the dad's driving, and uh, there's a bee flying around in the car. I mean, isn't that weird how if you're in a car and there's a spider or a bee, how freaked out you get? Like, you're going to get in an accident and send people to the hospital. Because there's a bee. But, so, you know, there's, the family's driving, and there's a bee flying around, and everybody's freaking out, and the dad grabs the bee, and the bee stings him. Of course, they don't know that, right? And then he lets the bee go. And so the bee is still flying around. And they're like, Dad, Dad. But then he shows his hand, right? And you know, a bee can only sting once, right? And the sting, the stinger is in the dad's Finger. So now it's just a bee. Now it's like a fly. Now it's an annoyance. But it's lost its sting, right? Isn't that what Paul says? The sting of death has been lost. And it wasn't because it wasn't because God just pushed it to the back of the shelf. He swallowed it through Christ. He he took the death that we belong belong to us. Even today in our reading, right, hell, it wasn't as if God said, I'm going I'm to pretend you didn't do it. I'm going to pretend you didn't sin, the way a lot of us parents do, right, when we don't want to have to discipline our kids. We pretend we didn't see it, right? No, Christ would endure the hell that we deserved. He would swallow it. 
he would take it. He took the poison of death on our behalf that we might ever and eternally feast at the table that he has prepared for us. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that we would know in a very deep, accurate, and palpable sense our true citizenship and and what happened in order for us to have it, that we would not just view it as something we were born into or somehow can achieve through our own efforts, but there was a great price paid in order for us to have peace with God, for us to be, as it were, that new Jerusalem, for us to be that bride. And we do thank you, Father, that you are continually washing us with your word. And we do pray that we would avail ourselves of everything that you have provided for us to know the love by which we have been loved. It is a remarkable thing, Father. We're not asking you to love us more because we know that you could not love us any more than you do. But we do pray that we would know the depths of that love, that we would understand the height and the width and the depth of the love with which we've been loved through Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.